0: And now turn to the reading for our sermon today, Psalm 100. A psalm that we've already read once, but it bears reading a second time. Psalm 100 is on page 500 in the Pew Bibles. Again, pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. A psalm for giving thanks. Good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you are not a distant and a silent God, but that you come and dwell in the midst of your people, and that you have spoken to us in your Word. Give us ears this morning to hear from your word, that me, we might be changed by it, that our eyes would be taken off of ourselves and our present circumstances and fixed upon you and upon your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been a part of a conversation? That was actually more of a monologue or a lecture than an actual conversation. You sit there, perhaps you are the one sitting at this table with a friend, and you are the one doing all of the talking. Minutes go by, perhaps hours go by, and this other person has no opportunity to fit in even a word more than a "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, as they sit there and listen to you go on and on. Or perhaps you are the person that is a good and patient listener in that conversation. As someone who tends more towards the talking too much side of things, I was once given advice to try to have the other person in a conversation always do a majority of the talking. So for me, that looks like trying to do 49% or less of the talking in a conversation. And for me, that takes a lot of restraint, takes a lot of intentionality. It means learning to be a good question asker and a good listener. Sometimes it means me being a little less self-centered and caring less about me and what I want to say and caring about what someone else has to say. Now, if you're on the other end of that spectrum and you tend to be the silent one in these one-sided conversations, first, I do commend you for being a good and patient listener. But I also want to encourage you to talk, not only because us talkative people need to hear what you have to say, but because you also need opportunities to process things that are going on in your heart and in your mind. Conversations shouldn't be monologues. How often, though, when we come to corporate worship, do we think of what we are doing here as a sort of a monologue instead of a conversation? We can treat worship as this monologue where we do all of the talking. We pray to God. We sing to God. We read the Bible, another Person, a preacher stands up and speaks human to human about God, but is God really here and is God actually speaking? Worship ought to be a conversation or a dialogue between God and his people, a conversation where both voices are important and both voices have their distinct roles to play in what is going on. Worship is A conversation. And so we don't do or ought not to do all of the talking. Now, as a conversation, a worship service has this sort of back and forth nature to it, where God speaks to his people in his word and through the preaching of his word. And we respond appropriately, whether with adoration or with confession, thanksgiving, or even outwardly with action. You could even look at the worship guide that you have with you today, and you can walk through our liturgy, and you can probably identify in that liturgy the parts where God is the primary speaker and the parts in the service where we are the primary speaker. Now, of course, we shouldn't overplay this, and not every element fits perfectly into this paradigm of worship as a conversation, But it really is an important way of thinking about what is going on when we gather together as God's people. However, even though both voices matter in the conversation that is corporate worship, they are not equal voices. And that's vital for us to see. There is a voice that is far more significant than all of the others. And that is the voice of God. In the conversation of corporate worship, God is always the one who initiates. He is always the one who gets the first word. And our words back to him, praises and prayers, are but a response to his word to us. Even as in scripture, in all of God's covenant relationships with people, we see God initiating that relationship. So it is in the same way in our corporate worship. God initiates the conversation. And it is this principle of God's initiation that we see highlighted in Psalm 100. As we look at these various psalms throughout the summer, we're going to be highlighting the different aspects of our corporate worship services here at Living Stone. And so this week we start where we begin every corporate worship service at Livingstone with a call to worship. And in a call to worship, God gets the first word. Our call to worship is an invitation from God himself to his people to worship. It is a call. You could even say that it is a command to worship. And it's the launching off point for the rest of everything that we do when we gather together as God's people. It's a reminder that when we sing, it's because God calls us to sing. When we pray, it's because God calls us to pray. When we read and hear from God's word, it's because God calls us to hear from him in his word. So to put it simply this morning from Psalm 100, the big idea is this. We worship because God calls us to worship. We worship because God calls us to worship. Now as we dive into Psalm 100 itself, the first thing I want you to pay attention to is the structure of the psalm. So if you have Uh, your Bible in front of you. This will be helpful for you to to kind of look at what I'm pointing out to you. There are a couple things I want you to be able to see that will help us as we unpack what's going on here in Psalm 100. The first thing you'll notice in Psalm 100 is that there are four bunches of lines. I don't know a better simple word to describe it. Verses 1 and 2 make up one set of lines. There are three lines there. If you have the pew Bible, it might look like four, but one is actually just wrapped around. There are three lines. Then in verse three, there's another set of three lines. In verse four, there are three lines. In verse five, there are three lines. And the ESV, I think, does a good job of visually separating these for us so we can see what's going on. There are these four subsets of the psalm. The second thing to notice is that the first three of these sets contain all of the imperatives or commands of the psalm. There are seven commands in these first three sections. Seven commands. And there is a structure to the, to the way that these commands are laid out for us in the psalm. If you've been at Livingstone for a while, you've heard us talk about chiasms and this parallel structure that Hebrew writers often used when they were communicating. And we see this here in Psalm 100. The first two commands parallel the last two commands. And then the third and fifth parallel each other. We'll actually see that the third command, come, and the fifth command, enter, are actually the same exact word in Hebrew, helping, I think, us to see that parallel there. And then there's a central command, kind of working outside to inside. And that central command is in verse 3, the command to know. So instead of working in a linear way through this psalm, if maybe you're used to verse by verse preaching, where you go line by line, we're actually going to be working outside to inside. We're going to start with the first and the last two commands, then work toward the middle and then dive in and hit at the central command or imperative in this psalm. So we're going to see, as we do this, three aspects of how God calls us to worship. Again, we worship because God calls us to worship, but we're going to see that God calls us to the action of worship, God calls us to the place of worship, and God calls us to the mind of worship. If you are taking notes and you want it to be very simple, action, place, and mind. Action, place, and mind. So first, God calls us to the action of worship. Let's look at the first two and the last two commands. Make a joyful noise and serve in verses one and two. And then the last two commands in verse four, give thanks and bless. And when we see these, we see the human actions of praise or worship. And one thing to notice is that three of these four commands are commands for a vocal action, to make a joyful noise, to give thanks, to praise God, to bless him. Much of our worship is a vocal activity. We sing, we pray, we read. And it's this vocal aspect that is often uh, just so central in our activity in worship. So let's look at these commands. The first one, make a joyful noise. This is actually one word in the Hebrew. And if you want a one-word English translation of this Hebrew word, I think it can be translated well as shout. Or you could say, make a blast or a triumphant noise. Usually when we use the phrase make a joyful noise in church, we are talking about that person who sits next to us or behind us that cannot hold a tune. We say, well, at least they're making a joyful noise. And then if we were in the South, we would follow it up with, bless their heart. (laughs) You've got it. But that's not what this is talking about. This is really more a phrase that is used when a triumphant king returns back from victory in battle to his city and the people seeing their king coming back and drawing near to the city, cry out with a shout, with a loud voice. It's not just a happy little playful noise. This is a triumphant declaration of the people over their king. If you want a real world Wisconsin type of example, if you've been to Lambeau field when the Packers score a touchdown, the 81,000 people in Lambeau field yell out together. There's this roar that fills the entire stadium. and I think that's maybe a better picture for us than just a, a joyful noise. It's this triumphant declaration of people who are excited, people who love what they have just seen, and they verbally declare by yelling, by, by shouting, by high-fiving the person standing next to them. But what's amazing about this declaration in Psalm 100 is that it puts even the cry of 81,000 people to shame. It makes it seem minuscule and small. Notice who this call to worship is to. Make a joyful noise to God. All the earth. All the earth. This wasn't just a call to the Israelites. This was a call to all nations, to the Gentiles, to join their voices together and to praise God and to shout with triumph. And for this reason, Matthew Henry considers this part of Psalm 100 actually to be a prophecy. A prophecy of what we see in Revelation of that great day When people from every nation are gathered together and with a loud shout, worship God. A prophecy of him gathering together the full number of his people from every nation to worship him. And the amazing part is that we are a part of that right now. When we gather together as living stone, we gather as people that God has gathered from the nations, even including the nation of America and other nations. And we gather together to worship God. And the amazing thing is that our small gathering is just a small representation of that full number of those who will one day worship God together for eternity. Our small, simple worship on Sunday morning is actually a little picture and foretaste of heaven. Our joyful noise is just a faint whisper of that great noise of all of God's people gathered together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. In the second command, we see again, this sort of joyful exuberance in worship. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. The word serve there, we we might think that this is a call to go live for God outside of worship. We are to serve him in every area of life, which we certainly are. But in this context, it's actually more a reference to worship. It is a word that is used regularly in the Old Testament of the priests and their service in the temple. So this is a call to gather together in the temple and to serve God with worship. But notice that it also tells us how we are to worship God, or with what type of heart we are to worship God. It says, worship him with gladness. And just like with the joyful noise, this is way more than just being happy when we come to worship. I think an outdated term that captures this idea really well is the term mirth. We sang together in Psalm 100, William Keats' famous rendition of Psalm 100 set to the tune Old Hundredth. A tune that was actually written for Psalm 100, not the doxology. We hear that tune, we think doxology. But really, for the last few hundred years since the Reformation, that tune is for Psalm 100. And in an older version of Psalm 100, instead of saying, serve him with fear, it uses this term, serve him with mirth, is foretell. It's this idea of a joyful gathering together of God's people, Mirth, like at a, at a wedding reception, people are, are dancing together. People are overjoyed and exuberant in their love for what is going on. We are to serve the Lord with this sort of mirth and gladness. And we see here in these commands, and when we put it together with the last two commands, to give thanks, to bless his name, we see that our worship is not to be this stale humdrum duty and boredom. It is to be a jubilant and joyful overflowing of thanksgiving, of praise, of declarations of the goodness of God. It's supposed to be a delight in God that pours out of us in praise and adoration. Now, this isn't just me trying to manipulate you to sing louder on Sunday mornings, although I would not object to you singing louder. I love loud singing. Instead, my desire for all of us is to ask ourselves if our personal participation in worship looks what looks like what God is commanding here? Does my participation in the gathered worship of God look like this? Does my heart overflow with joy and delight that pours out of me vocally in praise to God? And if you' like me, your answer is most likely sometimes but never perfectly if so if that is your answer the solution isn't just one of the many variations of just try harder just just do it just sing louder we can so easily in worship try to make this sort of heart happen we try to cultivate this certain aesthetic In worship, this certain worship experience that will make our hearts excited about God. And this isn't something that just contemporary churches do. It's something that even traditional churches or more mystical churches can do. They can rely upon whether a great worship band or awesome lights or a Geneva robe or that singing of that good old hymn to cultivate the experience that will really stir my heart to worship God. But it's not something that we can Manipulate however we seek to ma- manipulate it. It's not something that we can just make happen. Jonathan Landry Cruz, in his book, What Happens When We Worship, a book that we're going to be quoting a lot this summer, he has this to say Worship is never dull, but we are sometimes. I, th- I just love that, that phrase. Worship is never dull, but we are sometimes. Church going is monotonous and mundane only because our eyes are blinded to the supernatural wonder that is taking place all around us. The reality that worship is an exhilarating experience, the the reality is that worship is an exhilarating experience. So we don't need smoke machines, more lights, dramatic presentations, louder music, mystical theology, or we could add a well played piano. Lydia, you play very well. Or, or perfectly flowing liturgy to make worship exciting. We simply need to understand what is going on in the first place. It doesn't matter if your week is filled with skydiving, speed, speed racing, or whatever your personal taste for adventure might be. No matter what your week looks like, Sunday worship is the highlight. According to Cruz, we don't need to manufacture an exciting worship experience. What we need is to understand what is actually happening when we gather together to worship. So what is happening? What does happen when we gather together in this room on a Sunday morning and sing and pray and read? Among many things, one of the most significant things that is happening is that God is actually with us. That we come into the very presence of God when the people of God gather for worship. So we've seen that God calls us to the action of worship. Our second section, we see that God calls us to the place of worship. And I've already given away the punchline the place of worship is the presence of God. The place of worship is the presence of God. At the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 5, we move one step closer from the outside to the to this moving toward the central point that we'll look at after these commands. And we see these two identical commands, at least in the Hebrew identical, enter and come. These commands are an invitation to enter into the temple in Jerusalem, to come through the gates, to come into the courts of the temple, and to participate in the gathered worship of God. But this was more than just called to come to the temple. Verse 2 reminds us of the primary significance of the temple, or at least one of the primary parts of significance of the temple in the Old Testament the presence of God. Verse 2 says, Come into his presence with singing. To enter the temple for worship was to come into the very presence of God himself. But that was the Old Testament. We don't have a temple anymore. Exactly. When God calls all of the earth, people from every nation, both Jew and Gentile, to worship him, it's no longer to a physical temple in Jerusalem. Instead, God's global people worship God globally because of the reality that in Jesus, we are the temple of God. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 on this point. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's it's pulling from what Paul was saying earlier in Ephesians 2 of God's act of taking what was dead and bringing it to life, of making people that were not God's people into his people, that God has saved us and redeemed us. And he goes on, he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Because we are in Christ Because we are by the Spirit, a holy temple and a dwelling place for God. When those who are redeemed by Jesus gather together in worship, something truly miraculous happens. God is truly, God is truly, and he is actually with us. He is here Now, of course, God is always with us, is he not? Because God is omnipresent. He is always and everywhere present. But there is a special way that God dwells with his people when they gather. In a similar way to how God was with Israel in the tabernacle and the temple. Now, look, we might want something flashier in worship. But the reality is that in the conversation with God that is our corporate worship, God is really with us. God really does speak to us in his word when it is read and when it is preached. God really does commune with us at the Lord's Supper. God really does signify and seal his promises to us in baptism. He really does hear our prayers and our praises because he is here. Of all of the things that could possibly make worship exhilarating and exciting, Whether an engaging preacher, an emotional song, or a grand cathedral, what could possibly compare or compete with the presence of God? If you need something other than our triune God to make sure that your heart is really stirred in worship, then perhaps you're actually worshiping the show instead of God himself. And I know I've already said this, but it's worth repeating. The presence of God in worship with the people that he has gathered is, in this present age, a wonderful appetizer that is preparing us for the main dish. God is preparing us through this small taste for a new heavens and a new earth where we will see God face to face, where we will dwell with him in presence like we never have before, where we will worship him forever our worship again is an appetizer for the main dish of heaven and this may sound odd but corporate worship is quite literally the most heavenly thing that you will experience in your life it probably doesn't feel that way when you come and we walk in these doors all of us together five minutes after we're supposed to start and we stand up and we have a call to worship and we sing a few songs together. But do we realize what is really happening? That God is really with us. That this is a foretaste of heaven itself. And that in a literal way, corporate worship is the most heavenly thing you will experience in this life. The call to worship is a call to the activity of worship, but also to the place of worship, to the presence of God And in this way, Psalm 100 is kind of like the summons of a king. With a king, you don't enter into his throne room without an invitation. If you're familiar with the story of Esther in the Old Testament, there was this great danger to her entering into the presence of the king without him inviting her first, but she was willing to undergo that danger to help deliver and save the people of God. You don't enter into the presence of a king unless he calls you first. That is why her call to worship is so amazing. Because our God invites us. He gives us in Jesus an open invitation as his people to come into his throne room. To come before him and offer up our prayers and our praises. To dwell with him and to commune with him. Jesus has opened up in his blood the way into the holy of holies and the presence of God. What a privilege we have as his people. Let me end the second section with a reading from Hebrews 10. Pay attention to what Jesus has done here to bring us together to God and what that means for our corporate worship. In Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our last point this morning comes from verses three and five, that God calls us to the mind of worship. God calls us to the mind of worship. Out of the seven commands that we see, the central command is no. In verse 3, it's been moving inwards towards this centerpiece of the seven, the fourth of seven, the perfect, complete set of imperatives. The middle one is to know. And this actually gets a whole section. Remember those four sections. It gets a whole section just to itself. The first section has three imperatives. The third section has three imperatives, but the central one only has a single imperative. I think even more highlighting to us the significance of this command amongst all of the other commands. Again, this command is to know. This shows us that it's not only our voices and our hearts that matter in worship, but also our minds. God cares about how we think in worship and what we think about and what it is that we know in worship. Consider Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we know that verse, right? This call to the spiritual worship, giving our lives as a living sacrifice to God. But notice what Paul says next. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And So in our worship, we're not only called to do something. We are called to know something. We are called to come together so that our minds would be renewed. That we would think about what we ought to think about. That we would think in right ways about who our God is and what he has done for us. And Psalm 100 gives us these two foundational things that we are to know in our worship. We are to know who God has made us to be and who God himself is. Who God has made us to be and who God himself is. So first, who God has made us to be. Look at verse 3. Says, know that the Lord, He is God. The Lord, the covenant God who has entered into relationship with Israel through his covenants. He is the God. He is the one and only true God. And what has this God done? He has made you to be his. Continuing, verse three: it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. When it says here that God made us, it's not merely talking about creation. It's actually probably talking more about salvation. It's not just saying that God made us and created humans from the dust of the earth, it's also saying that God has made us to be something specific as his people. He has created a specific group of people to be his own, people that he has redeemed and bought by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, those he has gathered together to be a specific people. He has created us to be something, to be his people, the citizens of his kingdom, to be his sheep, the people of his flock, the sheep who dwell under his loving care, And we see again that God has done this. And we know even more clearly how has God made us his sheep. It's through Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who came and laid down his life for the sheep. So that we might be gods. We might belong to him and he might be ours. God is not only the God, he is our God. And we are not only just a gathering of people. We are God's people. And that makes all of the difference in how we participate in corporate worship. True worship is the act of a redeemed people toward a redeeming God. So first, we must know who God has made us to be. Then second, we must know who God himself is. This is the last piece of knowledge that the psalmist gives for us in verse 5. And he gives this as the main motivation for worship. You'll notice that word, for When you see words like for or then or so that or therefore in scripture, always underline it. Make note of what is going on here. Why are we to worship for the Lord is good? This is an astounding statement about our God. It might remind you of a similar statement in 1 John chapter 4, that God is love. The Lord is good teaches us that goodness is not just a character trait that God has. Goodness is what God is. And I'm going to challenge you because, again, we're called to the renewing of our minds. I'm going to challenge you. It's a tough bit of theology here, but it's a piece of theology that I think inspires our worship. And this is called the doctrine of divine simplicity. You may have never heard of that before Essentially, what divine simplicity says is that God is not made up of parts like we are made up of parts. I have a hand, I have feet, I have hair and a head. God is not assembled pieces. God is. It's true for his attributes. God is not part good, part love, part just, part wise, and part powerful. God is good. God is love. God is wise. What it means is that what God is, essentially, he is completely and exhaustively at all times and in every way. Another way to say it is that God does not have attributes. God is his attributes. I think maybe a way to illustrate that is if I told you that Jeff was good, I would not be saying the same thing as when I say God is good. Sometimes we think about God as if He is good, but he's good like we're good just a million times more. But God is actually good in a completely separate and different way than we are good. And God's goodness is not reflective of our goodness. Any goodness we have is only a faint reflection of his goodness. His goodness is ultimate. When I say that Jeff is good, what I mean is that Jeff has goodness and it is a part of who he is. But I am not saying that Jeff is always good and everything he does is good. We could ask Tommy. I'm sure she has many experiences. Jeff is not always an exhaustively and perfectly good. And in those moments when Jeff is not acting out of goodness, he is still Jeff. He is still who he is. But goodness is not something that is separable from God. Goodness is who God is. I know this is really tough. I'm trying to explain this This big concept of God. But when we see these phrases in scripture, we need to understand what's really going on. God is good. When I think we can grasp even a little piece of what scripture tells us about the bigness of God. And how vast he is in his perfections. Doesn't that stir us to worship him? God is good. This is this big idea, but it's so practical. It, it dives in into our hearts and it, it inspires us to worship God. It, it teaches us how to live God in every moment. Because God is good, it means that he is always good. And it means he's always good in everything that he does. Think about this. God is good in his salvation. But God is also good in his justice and his wrath. God is good in his creation even when his providence toward us is hard in this life. God is good in joy. God is good in suffering. God is good on a wedding day. And God is good at a funeral. Because God is always good. Because God is always good, his goodness never changes. Think about this and how this impacts the way that we live in this life. God's goodness does not Increase or decrease, but it's always perfect and full in every single way. There is never something that God does that is more good or less good. And because God's goodness never changes, I know that His goodness today is the same goodness that I can depend upon and rely upon tomorrow and for the rest of my life. God's goodness is always good, it never changes and it's untainted. It does not, it's not mixed. It's not this thing that is sometimes good, but it's mixed with these other things. God is perfectly good in its purity, this pure and perfect goodness. And what's amazing as we see in Psalm 100 is that God's goodness then, this perfect and always never changing goodness, what does it do? It flows outward to us. God is not just good out there. As this concept, God is not just vaguely good. God is good to us. His goodness flows to us. I love what Lewis Burkhoff says, a quote that's on the front of your worship guide. It says, God's goodness is that perfection which prompts him to deal kindly and bounteously with all his creatures. It is an overflowing and outwardly facing goodness toward all of his creatures. God is good to the sinner and to the saint. God sends his sunshine upon a fallen world. God yesterday blessed us with desperately needed rain. And it fell on my parched garden in our backyard and upon our non-Christian neighbor's garden in their backyard. And that is God's goodness overflowing to his creation, a goodness that we taste of in this life. But God is also good in a special way to his people And that is the emphasis in Psalm 100. It says kind of the summary statement, the Lord is good. And then just these pictures of how God is good outwardly to us. It says, his steadfast love endures forever, faithfulness to all generations. Steadfast love here, it's the Hebrew word chesed. It shows up all around the Old Testament. It's a word that is so hard to translate to English but it speaks of the overflowing mercy and love and kindness and grace and faithfulness and trustworthiness of God to his redeemed people. That is who our good God is to us. He has shown us his steadfast love and his faithfulness, and they will endure for eternity. What that means is that if you have tasted of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, that you have tasted of the goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, our God is good. Our God is with us. And our God has called us. So let us worship him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious father, we do praise you for being our God for forming us together through faith in Christ into a distinct people, into sheep that are a part of your flock, sheep that are watched over by your good and loving and faithful and steadfast hand. God, help us to grasp more and more of your goodness and all that you are for us. God, may we be stirred to worship you, to worship you as your gathered people on Sunday mornings, and then to live for you and worship you in all of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.